And just want to take a second and thank Policy Genius. They're supporting today's episode of Success Story. I know we all have kids. We all have families we want to take care of. And I personally check something off major on my to-do list, life insurance. It's a tough topic. It's really hard to think about, but it's so important. And the hard part was sorting through all the options. Luckily, I found Policy Genius. Policy Genius is an online insurance marketplace that makes getting life insurance surprisingly easy. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Now, knowing my family's protected brings me incredible peace of mind. Don't put off this important decision. Check life insurance off your to-do list in no time with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Welcome to Success Story, the most useful podcast in the world. I'm your host, Scott D. Clary. The Success Story podcast is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The HubSpot Podcast Network has other amazing podcasts like No Straight Path, hosted by Ashley Menzies Babatunde. Now, by shedding light on the stories behind the shiny resumes, social media highlights, and job titles, No Straight Path aims to humanize success from the millennial perspective. Featuring guests from all walks of life, No Straight Path aims to inspire conversations around the nuanced perspectives of success. Now, if some of these topics at home, you're going to love this show. Success is all about maximizing happiness. An interview with Esther Agbaji about finding your voice. Success is communal with Yvonne Doc Aswad. Now, if these topics are interesting to you, make sure to check out No Straight Path wherever you listen to your podcast. Today, my guest is Dr. John Martini. He is a human behavior specialist. He's an internationally published author, educator, and a profound authority on maximizing human awareness and potential. Dr. Martini uncovers how business owners and leaders can gain more balance and clarity of purpose by aligning themselves with their highest values. Dr. Martini has been featured internationally. He was in the acclaimed film, The Secret, exploring the laws of attraction, power of thought, and application in achieving entrepreneurial success. But before you jump to conclusions, he is a science-based, logic-based, and data-backed individual who can actually show you how mindset and value can deliver success through changes that actually occur in your body. He, bu- he debunks myths on motivation and explains that negative self-talk and procrastination is really the result of unrealistic expectation a sign that we have to get real and properly understand ourselves. He's worked extensively with successful business leaders, multinational corporations on professional development, leadership, uh, finance, entrepreneurship, scalability. He reveals key teachings in all of his content, his YouTube, his classes, uh, his courses when he consults for entrepreneurial success and self-mastery. He has been doing this for over 40 years. He's a well-known name in personal and professional development and mastery. What do we speak about? We spoke about his origin story, a certain point in his life when he was homeless, which transitioned into a point in his life when he almost died, which has then pushed him towards, uh, this moment in his life pushed him towards learning and teaching and doing what he does now. 
which is ultimately helping people discover their values, why it's important to discover your values, why you have to align your values with what you're doing in your life, and ultimately how to understand if your values are actually serving you as well as they possibly could, and if they're not, how to change your values so that everything you do uh, is, I don't want to say effortless, but it just feels like everything you do is aligned with who you are as a person, which ultimately gives you more energy, more clarity, more enthusiasm, which will lead to uh, no, undoubtedly more success. So let's jump right into this. This is Dr. John Martini. He is a best-selling author. He is a educator, a speaker, an authority, and uh, ultimately a human behavior uh, specialist. My journey is I, I, as a professional speaker and educator for over 49 years now, I just full-time research, write, travel, and teach. I, um, every day, pretty well every single day of my life, I'm doing that. So I started that journey at age really 17. And I think that was a perfect expression of some of the childhood challenges I had. When I was born, I had a speech impediment and I went to a speech pathologist from age one and a half to four and had to wear buttons and strings in my mouth. So I think that was probably a void that made me want to learn how to speak properly. I was also born with an arm and leg turned inward, kind of a deformity, and had to wear braces on my arm and leg. And that probably that constraint probably wanted to make sure I traveled, <laughs> be free. And um, by the time I was six, when I started elementary school, my first grade teacher, Mrs. McLaughlin, had my parents come to the school and told my parents, I said, I'm afraid your son's not ever going to be able to read or write effectively because I wrote backwards with dyslexia. And um, not amount to anything, not go very far in life, probably won't do much in life. If I were you, I'd get him into sports because when I got out of my braces, all I wanted to do is run. <laughs> and she said, he can run fast. And I only made it through elementary school by asking the smartest kids questions, which allowed me to pass enough to get through school until I turned 12 to 13. My parents at age 12 moved to a small town where there wasn't a lot of smart kids, low socioeconomic area. We lived in kind of a farming area. And I uh, dropped out of school and I was a, became a street kid. I lived in a bowling alley and I lived in a, in a park and I lived in car and you know typical street kind of kid but at age 13 I, I i started surfing at nine texas wasn't the surf capital but i was able to do that i wasn't able to do much of anything else but i took up surfing and and the place to go surfing was california so at 14 i hitchhiked to california and down into mexico at 15 i made it over to hawaii and i lived under a bridge first, a Kamehameha Highway bridge, Sunset Beach, then in the Iakai Beach Park under a park bench, then in a the bathroom there, then finally an abandoned car, and then a tent. So I kept social climbing and I became a pretty good surfer. I got to be in some surf magazines and surf movies and surf books. 
I got to ride big waves and then almost died at 17, towards the end of 17. And in the recovery of that, I was led to a, a health food store and then on to a yoga class where I met Paul C. Bragg, who was a guest lecturer there. And in one night, in one hour, this one man inspired me to believe that maybe I could overcome my learning problems, learn how to read and speak properly. I, I knew I could make a surfboard and ride a board, but I didn't think I was going to be articulate. But that night I had a dream to overcome my learning problems. And with some of the ideas he had said, I thought maybe I could pull it off. So I ended up flying back from Honolulu over to LA, hitchhiking back to Texas, taking a GED test and guessed and passed that thing. I have no idea because I couldn't even, I didn't read the questions. I just guessed with my, closed my eyes and put a little a pencil in a thing and miraculously passed the thing. Tried to go to school again, failed. And then I said, I, I don't want to give up on this. And I went to, my mom saw that I'd failed and was really distraught. And she said to me, son, whether you become a great teacher and, and travel the world or whether you go back and ride big waves or you live on the streets, I just want to let you know your father and I are going to love you no matter what you do. We just love you. And I needed to hear that at that moment. And uh, my hand went into a fist. And I looked up and I saw the vision that I had the night I met Paul Bragg of me speaking in front of a group of people. And I said to myself, I'm in a master's thing called reading, teaching, learning, and I'm going to do whatever it takes, travel whatever distance and pay whatever price to give my service of love across the planet. I'm not going to let any human being stop me, not even myself. And I just got up and hugged my mom and went in my room and I got a dictionary out and I just started memorizing 30 words a day until my vocabulary was strong enough to pass school. And then if you do 30 words a day, at the end of a couple of years, you got 20,000 friggin' words in your head. And I, I did pretty well with that. I just became like a ritual. I just a machine memorizing words and learning words and applying them. And so I could start reading. And that was one of the most invigorating things of my life. I never stopped the reading thing. I've read over 30,600 books now. And I just read and I just learned and I just started and people started asking me questions and I started answering them and, and my teaching career began. And it started out with one woman who was an Afro-American woman asking me questions and then another Persian man and then a group of kids getting out of class wanting me to teach them on mathematics as I was learning it. And then by the time I went to the University of Houston, uh, 100, 150, sometimes 400 people would gather in a park, in the park area at the, at the school and listen and ask questions. And I'd have classes every day. When I went on to professional school, I continued that. And I, then I, when I got out of there, I started lecturing locally and then citywide, statewide, nationwide. And now I've been blessed to speak in 163 countries. And we reached, you know, a lot of people. And, and any opportunity to speak and anybody that would listen to me who meant something, me and still does. And I just full-time teach, write, read, travel. I write books. I um anything to do with mastering life and human behavior and doing something extraordinary with their life and doing what you really love in life. I really believe that people deserve to do what they love and love what they do every day. And I do everything I can to try to find a ways of helping them achieve that because their life goes by pretty quick, as you know, and you know, I want them to be able to do what they'd love to do because I was blessed, really blessed by a gentleman that helped me do that.
And when did you decide to, because obviously your love for teaching, your passion for learning and teaching has evolved over the years. And now it's manifested into what you're, what you're doing now, what you're teaching now to people that are looking to uh, better understand and perform in their life. Um, when did you realize that this particular, uh, I guess, topic, like teaching people how to upskill themselves, how to um, determine their values, how to optimize their life, how to be happy, how to be in sync, how to get the most out of life. When did you choose to go down that path? Because that's a particularly difficult thing to teach. A lot of people um, probably find it very easy to teach a very uh, tangible thing like a math or a science or a history, but you're trying to uh, you're trying to move mountains. You're trying to get people to live a better life in business and outside of business. So why did you go down that road? Well, uh, there's a number of things. Paul Bragg, the night I met him, said he mentioned the word universal laws, natural laws. And I didn't really understand what that meant. But I eventually looked that up. And, and that led to a, a concept called the logos, which is kind of a mystical thing. And it meant the order and reason of the universe kind of thing. And that led me to ologies. I just kept using the dictionary. And I'm an etymologist, so I love studying the origin of words. And in the process of doing it, I then made a list of every known discipline and ology you could study. And then I looked and, uh, looked and realized that the average PhD, as you do multiple PhDs, is about 100 books. And so I just made a commitment that I would read 100 books in every knownology to try to gather the most universal principles that I could get to build a body of knowledge that I could share with people that I could rely on. And so, and I, and I, at 18, I decided I wanted to master my life. It sounded cool, the word mastery, masters of the universe kind of thing. And I thought, wow, that's cool. I want to master. And so I then had to go, what exactly does that mean? And I then decided that uh, I divided life into seven areas, our intellectual pursuits and waking up our genius and creativity and innovations. We can create original ideas that can serve people. Our vocational quest where we can create some sort of a sustainable business and sustainable fair exchange with people that meets people's needs that remunerates us so we have a great income. I want to master business and have a global business, which I'm blessed to do. I wanted to have financial independence where I'm not working for money. My money is working for me where passive income way exceeds active income. I'm about 50 times that now. So I'm doing pretty good there. And then um, I want to also have a global family dynamic, which is why I live on the, on the ship called the world, which goes all over the world. I want to have a global family. I, I always, I learned that from Socrates that Plato wrote about that. Uh, they asked him, was he, you know, he said, I, I'm not a man of Corinth and not a man of Athens. I'm a citizen of the world. And Einstein said, I'm not a man of my family or community or city or state. I'm a citizen of the, of the world, of the universe. And I always thought that's cool. And I wrote that down. I said, I want to be a citizen of the world. And I wanted to go around the world. And so I want a relationship and family dynamic that was global, which I do, I have. Then I want to have social influence. I want to meet the most amazing people on the planet and uh, hang out with them and influence them and participate in people that are the greatest at what they do. The greatest Olympic medalists, the greatest Nobel Prize winners, the greatest uh, you know, religious leaders. I, I, so I set out to hang out and interact with them. I think I'm about 3,900 3, of those people now. 
And then I, I also wanted to have a vital body, an energized body. I'm 67 going on 68, and I'm, I usually work circles around most people, less age than me, so I'm doing pretty good there. And uh, I also wanted to create an inspired movement, not a religion. I didn't, I, I, I'd let people do whatever they do with the religion, but I just wanted to do, help people live inspired lives where they feel that they had some sort of inspired mission. And so to me, all seven of those areas can be empowered. And I, in any area of our life, we don't empower, somebody else overpowers us. You know, if we don't empower ourselves intellectually, we get told what to, to think. We don't, don't empower ourselves in business, we're told what to do. If we don't empower ourselves in finance, we're told what we're worth. If we don't empower ourselves in relationship, we're doing honeydew stuff around the house that we could be delegating. If we don't empower ourselves socially, we'll be told propaganda and misinformation, which we certainly seen. And if we don't empower ourselves in physical, we'll be told what drugs to take and what organs to remove. And if we don't empower ourselves spiritually, we'll be following some, you know, geocentric Aristotelian construct that's probably finite instead of a universal scheme that the James Webb telescope is going to give us and continue our mystery studies. So I'm a firm believer in, in doing something extraordinary with our life and empower those to whatever level and whatever area that you want. If you want to do them all, I'm all for that. But I wanted to study everything I could that would allow me to help myself and others master that and do something extraordinary with those areas. That's been my dream and still my dream. And I work on that every day. I mean, I, I, that's made me study a lot of disciplines to help that economics and financial management, wealth building and business management. And I've met a lot of people in all those fields, Nobel Prize winners and religious leaders. So I, I've been blessed to, you know, because of that one pursuit, uh, gather information that I feel, you know, strongly that can help people. And I love that. That's the, you know, I know you, because you have a the podcast, you know what it's like to have somebody 100%. say, you know, you transform my life. That's the most inspiring thing that I get to do is to get in thousands of letters by people saying, you know, you've helped me do this or that, you know, I've been able to do this. My, my gratitude journal, that, which I write every day, is mostly filled with students' accomplishments. That's the thing that inspires me the most. So I love that. You've taken, you've taken um, these seven things that you want to empower in your life. And the way I see it, and correct me if I'm oversimplifying, but the way I see it is now, that's actually what has turned into what you teach over. You're teaching over the steps that you've actually implemented in your, in your yes. own life. So this is when you speak about determining your value. Everything you just said right there is a value that you internalize, that you have built out and extrapolated on and learned about and investigated. And that's what has made you fulfilled, happy, successful, all the things that people want to be. Now, let's let's talk about those. Let's talk about those. Let's talk about the framework. Let's, let's talk about the framework if somebody's trying to do what you've done, because that's incredible. A lot of people do not have clarity on maybe like two of the one of those things any any major uh focus in their life a lot of people lack a lot of clarity in business and, and in their personal life so let's walk through that framework because i think that's incredibly useful and that's that's sort of the core teaching when i when i consume all of your content it's to figure out what those values are so how do we do that yeah how do we get clear on that well first first every human being regardless of culture, age, or gender spectrum, lives moment by moment by a set of priorities, set of values, things that are most least important in life. Every perception, every decision, every action that underlies their behavior 
is an expression of their values. And whatever is highest on their value hierarchy, they're spontaneously inspired from within intrinsically to do. And whatever is lower on their values, they extrinsically need motivation, incentive, or something to push them from the outside. So you're going to excel and be more effective and efficient uh, and be more fluidic and graceful if you are living congruently with what you value most. That's why the principle, if you don't fill your day with high priority actions that inspire you, your day fills up with low priority distractions that don't. And you raise your self-worth when you live by the highest values and you lower it when you're in lower. You create symptomatology and blood glucose and oxygen goes down to the amygdala if you're living by lower values, which is where our survival mode is. And if we live in our highest values, it goes into the executive center where we have self-governance and mastery. And I could go on with that. I just did a presentation yesterday on, on the executive functions of the preformal cortex. And I'd elaborate on it until everybody was, their head was smoking, I think. But um, I'm a firm believer that prioritization is one of the keys of mastery. And people who do prioritize their life and master the skill of delegating everything other than what they're inspired to do can live an inspired life. But if you're trapped and you haven't been willing to let go of things that weigh you down, you hold yourself back and you scatter yourself and then you devalue yourself. So I've now applied that in each of the seven areas of life. Uh, a human being has a, a pulvinar nuclei in the thalamus, which is a gating and filtering center of sensory information going into the cortex. So that means that anything that is high on your value, the very highest, we extract and literally filter our physical, spiritual reality um, through that value system. And that's why, you know, you will, if you're a mother and you have three kids under the age of five and you're 35 years old and your focus and highest value is mothering and taking care of beautiful children, if you go to a mall, you're going to spot children's items, children's health items, education items, entertainment items, clothes, et cetera, that deal with children. You're not, not going to notice business things, sports things. You're going to see children's things. But if you're an entrepreneur and your highest value is running a company, you're going to see business entrepreneurial material in that mall. You're not going to see children's stuff. So you filter your reality according to the hierarchy of your values, and you learn and absorb and apply information most effectively when you can perceive that whatever you're perceiving is helping you fulfill that highest value. So the quality of your life is based on the quality of the question you ask. If you ask a question, how specifically is the information that I'm studying, let's say, helping me fulfill what is deeply most important to me and meaningful to me and what inspires me, if you can make links in the brain neuroplastically and remyelinate the brain by Hebbian rule, you can liberate yourself with a tremendous amount of energy and you will literally awaken a photographic, autographic mind. And your conscious information is expanded. Your focal fixation point is expanded. Your ability to absorb and apply that information goes up. And anytime you're studying something, even information that was unconsciously given in, uh, surfaces the second you link that information to what is valuable. I've proven that in, in studying unconscious learning. And so just in the learning and the waking up uh, genius capacities uh, and absorbing information, if we link whatever it is to the highest value, we engage and we empower our learning capacities and wake up genius and creativity. Genius and creativity emerges and maximizes when we're pursuing challenges of solving problems for humanity in a way that is serving what is most important to us. So we can't wait to get up in the morning and 
be a service and people can't wait to get that service because it's meeting a need. And that's where genius creativity occur. In the business world, nobody goes to wait to work for the sake of a company. They go to work to fulfill what they value most. And so if they can perceive that their job description and duties and responsibilities and the vision, mission, and primary objectives of the company are helping them fulfill their highest values, they'll be engaged. They won't need micromanagement. They are not going to need breaks. They'll just be inspired to go to work and do what they love doing. And so I have developed whole systems on how to maximize engagement to reduce the probability of health issues and, you know, wanting to get away and take breaks and all that and stuff and entitlement and, and show them how to empower their career. So they're absolutely a career orientation, not just a job that they're having to do. If you hear people say, I've got to, I must, I should, I ought to, I suppose to, I have to, I, I need to go to work. They're not engaged. But when they say, I love it, this is what I've dreamed about. This is what I love doing. That's totally creatable. I've, I've, I've proven that. And I can take anybody in a job and I can turn it into that type of state by asking questions and holding them accountable to answer those questions to make neuroplastic links in there into the cortex. So uh, we can take that. And we, when we communicate with people and managing people or lead people, if we communicate in their values, what we value most in their values and respect them, we get them and get them more engaged. And we don't have to be an autocrat and end up with a union counterbalancing the autocrat. We actually have an empowered leadership that's where people are doing what they love to do. And there's less management, less micromanagement, kind of like Buffett does with his, all the people running his company stays out of it because they're able to do their job and they love it. And they're doing it because they love to, not because they have to. And then when it comes to business finances, uh, your hierarchy of values will dictate your financial destiny. And if you have a higher value on buying consumables that depreciate and you do buying assets that depreciate, you're going to be working your life for money as a slave instead of having it work for you as a, as a master. And so I, I have ways of changing the value hierarchy so we can increase the probability of building wealth, because otherwise money will circulate through the economy from those who value at least to those who value at most. If you don't have a value on wealth building and you have a value on immediate gratifying consumables, then you're going to have your life be run by consumables and fill up all your space with a bunch of junk instead of actually going out and doing something that contributes that makes money. You'll be living vicariously through other people's brands instead of building a brand that draws in opportunities into your life. And when it comes to relationship, nobody wants to be told what to be or told what to do. They want to be loved and appreciated who they are and their identity, their ontological identity is an expression of what they value most. And so if you can communicate what you value most in terms of what they value most, and they feel that you're helping them fulfill what's important to them, they go into their executive center and they end up functioning with more true, uh, fair exchange communications, a dialogue instead of alternating monologues. And they, they are appreciative and they wanna be around you. They call, will call you charismatic because you care enough to respect them to communicate in what they value most. And when it comes to society, the same thing, except now it's on a scaled positioning where you're actually working and learning and re respecting the people you're going to lead by doing what you can to help other people get what they want and get in life. So you get what you want to get in life. Zig Ziglar taught me that when I was young and uh, 20 or so. And, and I think that that's a great principle. So the leadership is being clear on your vision and mission of what you want to dedicate to and communicating effectively in terms of other people's values. And when you do that, when you live by your highest values, the blood glucose and oxygen goes into the forebrain. The executive center, which is underneath the medial prefrontal cortex, is right in front of the 
you know, the lamina terminalis and right in front of the hypothalamus and pituitary gland. And it's actually correlated to a maintaining homeostasis to the autonomics, which then manages epigenetics, which then helps the immune system regulate its uh, uh, surveillance. I mean, the, I could just go, I could go a full week on just the physiological impact of living congruently by your highest value on just physiology. And you get the most wellness quotient. When you're doing what you love and are inspired and living by priority, your wellness quotient goes way up. You have use stress, not distress. Your telomeres grow. You expand your space and time horizons. You expand your, your contribution and your love for work. It's just amazing. And of course, that's an inspired life. And I think spirituality is not subordinating to some anthropomorphic uh, deity that's going to rescue from your, your, your fears, but it's realizing that uh, the divine nature inside you being inspired and living with equanimity within and equity with other people and contributing vastly on a scale that inspires you that makes a difference and leaving a mark and a, a legacy of contribution to me is, is a great spiritual contribution not subordinating to someone of the past it's about being present in the moment of contribution and uh, realizing your potential and exemplifying as einstein said what that is as a human being to planet earth and so I believe that those, all of those areas can be empowered. I, I love helping people one or two or all the above, waking those up and gathering information to show them how to do that. That's just the most inspiring thing I get to do. Absolutely fascinating. Fascinating. I appreciate you breaking that down. And I guess the, the, two, the two paths that I would like to go down, and it's up to you to choose which one you'd like to tackle first. I have sort of two main questions out of that. One would be, how can you identify your values? And then two would be, how can you potentially change your values if they're not in line with, for example, wealth and assets that appreciate versus depreciate or potentially the career that's actually going to benefit you? So how do you identify? And then how do you change if yeah. they're not in line? Well, I was, I got in, you know, aware of how significant values are many years ago. I've been teaching value applications for 43, almost 44 years. So I was probably in my early 20s when I started to realize the significance of those. But when you ask somebody what their values are, I can guarantee you, because I've done it so many thousands of times, um, that they will tell you um, injected values of outer authorities. Their mothers, their fathers, their preachers, their teachers, their conventions, traditions, and mores of the social uh, collective that they are part of the herd of will infiltrate and inculcate into their consciousness and they will tell you things that have nothing to do with what their life demonstrates. You know, they'll say peace and this and that and honesty and all these things. They don't realize anything about human behavior. So they just say what they think it's supposed to be many times, even to themselves. They're not even aware. You ask the average person how many want to be financially independent, they'll all put their hands up, but their life doesn't demonstrate that. Only 1% or less demonstrate that. The rest of them are dead. <laughs> so I'm not interested in what people say. I'm interested in what they live and what their life demonstrates. And because their perception, decisions, and actions are governed there. So I had to come up with uh, ways of determining values that went through that filter. And the, one of the most significant one was space, uh, proxemics. Uh, every human being, if you give a child, even in a crib, uh, a, an item, if they value it and it's intriguing to them and they value it, they will put it in their mouth, taste it, 
they'll play with it, look at it, they'll explore it, and they'll keep it next to them. They and if you try to take it away, they'll cry or do something, and they'll hold on to it because they anything that's valuable goes proximal, and they keep close to them. You give a woman a diamond ring, it usually stays close to them, right? Uh, and distal distance is something they push away. So if you give a child something it doesn't want, it'll kick and scream and whatever and push it out. So even a child at a young age already has a set of values. In fact, values are already occurring in the zygote, the very first uh, stage of, of, you know, first mitotic division from the sperm and the egg uniting. Values are already being uh, developing uh, in cells. But by the time we're born, we already have our set of values and we're developing them as we go and involving them. But we, we, first thing I do is look at space, how we feel our space most. What are the three most significant, most consistent items that we keep in our personal or intimate space? Personal is four feet, intimate's a foot and a half around us in proxemics. And we get an idea of what we actually fill our space with. And this tells us what we value. Like, I'm sure that you probably like me a bit, you probably have a computer in front of you a lot. And my computer is where I research, write, travel through Zoom and teach. Mm -hmm. So my computer is probably the most significant thing. If a fire was to break out and they said I couldn't take the, the I was on a plane or my ship or whatever, they said, you can't take that. I'd hide it in there and, you know, hide it with me because my it's, computer- It's your life. It's your life. It, that, that's the closest thing my to life. you. Yeah. Yeah. So and not that I wouldn't grab my kids first, but I would, I'd grab my kids <laughs> with my computer. You know? Yeah. But uh, it depends if they're teenagers, you might get the computer first. But anyway, I'm joking. But, but space is number one. The next one is time. You make time, find time, spend time, and create time for things that are really valuable to you. You run out of time and don't want to take time. And oh, I, I don't have time right now. I can't do that on things that aren't. And the more valuable it is, you make time for it. I mean, if, if all of a sudden, uh, uh, you know, I'm just going to pick a name if, if Bill Gates or, or maybe uh, Jeff Bezos or Richard Branch or somebody that's an icon in the business world, if all of a sudden they called and said, I can do an interview right this minute, you'd say probably, John, I got I to gotta go. Um, I, I, I got this opportunity. I'll, I'll call you. We'll reschedule this because <laughs> you get an opportunity you'd grab it. Yeah. So you would make time, find time, spend time on something that's very, very valuable to you. And so I look at how you fill your space most, top three things, how you spend your time most, top three things. And I don't want to go and write, you're not here to write what you wish it would be or hope it would be or what it used to be. You write down what your life demonstrates. Your life demonstrates your values. That's what's uh, so crucial to look carefully at what you're objectively doing. If I videotape you from a hovering, um, you know, thing above you, looking down on you, uh, and I, and I watched your life, it would tell me what you're doing. And that tells me, and watching that over a period of months and months and months, I can see what your pattern is. And I'm looking for that because that tells me what's valuable. The third one is what energizes you. Whenever you're doing something that's high in your value, your energy goes up. And whenever you do, and your mitochondria go up, the mitochondria actually spit out that energy and uh, you know do phosphorylation and, and oxidation much more efficiently when you're doing something high in your values. That's been demonstrated. And then if you don't, if you go down into lower values, your energy goes down. If, if all of a sudden somebody said, look, I want you to go and repair your car. We, there's no mechanics and you got to go out and do your car. You're going to procrastinate, hesitate, frustrate doing that. And you're going to go, oh, crap. You're going to fall asleep probably. Your reticular activating system is going to shut down. But if somebody says, look, I want you to interview Jeff Bezos today. Can you do that? If, even if you didn't get any sleep, you would rally. 
because yeah. you automatically would get yeah. that reticular activating system going. So what energizes you and what do you always have energy for? And what is it that you, when you do it, you got more energy than when you started. That's a sign of a high value. And they, and by the way, they'll be, when you do the space, time and energy, you're going to find that those patterns are the same. They're going to see the same thing repeating. If you're honest, I've done it thousands and thousands of times. The fourth one is money. You find money, make money, spend money, get money for things that are valuable to you. If I said to you right now, um, you know, do you have a, a, a $10 million in your pocket? You go, not, I, I may have to go and get that and work, you know, do something to get my $10 million. But if I said, okay, I've got a guaranteed return, a 10 to one return in 30 days. You'll if find you give that me $10 million, million I'll, get you, I'll get you 100 million. You would find a way of getting $10 million. Uh, you, you find, you call all your friends, you do whatever it takes to do it. So when you really, really, really value something, you find money for it. That's, that's what's amazing. When people say, I can't afford things, it means somebody hasn't sold it to them in a way where they feel their values are being met. That's all. There's no lack of money on this planet to any human being when they really have a value on something. So how you spend your money and where is that money going? If you look at the disbursement sheets, it tells you. If it mostly goes to a house, then obviously a house and whatever that represents to you is. And then you look at what does it really represent? Just like, what do you fill your space with? What's its dominant use? Because if I said my computer, I, well, the computer's not valuable. It's what you're able to do with it. So what's the utility of it? What's the purpose of that item? And the same thing for what you spend your money on. What exactly are you doing with that money? What are you trying to accomplish with that? That tells you what the value is. The fifth one is where are you most organized and ordered? You know, knowledge is organized in my mind. I have a vast amount of knowledge, uh, you know, gathered from all the reading and you know, watching YouTubes and stuff. So that's all organized on my computer and in my head. And wherever you have the most order and organization, it tells you what you value. And the next one is where you're most disciplined and reliable. Notice you can rely on me to be teaching. You can rely on me to be researching and writing, but you can't rely on me to socialize at a party or, or you know, go to a social event or, you know, I, I do work out once a week. But I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, HubSpot. Now, while you're listening to this podcast, you're probably doing something else too. Mastering the art of working out shaving like no one's watching. We get it. When you're having conversations with your customers, the same is probably true for them. They're IMing their teams, mentally planning date nights. So growing conversations beyond that moment can be challenging. HubSpot helps you go beyond the moment by connecting you and your teams so you can access the exact same data and see the full customer picture. What motivates them, what their expectations are, and how you can blow them out of the water. With powerful tools that connect marketing, sales, ops, and service, HubSpot's powerful CRM platform powers you and your teams to transform customer moments into extraordinary customer experiences. Learn how HubSpot can help your business grow better at HubSpot.com. Or do your own, or do your own tech support. That's not, a, that's not a priority. That's, that's something that you, know, you don't want to take you know, that I, I, I haven't cooked since I was 24. I haven't driven a car <laughs> in 32 years. You know, I, I delegate everything that's low in my values. I even joke with my girlfriend said, look, you know, um, you know, I'm not that great at lovemaking. If I was to get George Clooney or Gerard Butler or, you know, uh, Brad Pitt or, you know, it's, you know, something like that. If they, if I was to get them to make love for, uh, with you on my behalf, would you still love me? Every single time my girlfriend says yes, every time. So, you know, I, I, I delegate everything. I'm joking about that. I don't delegate that. I know, I know. I but know. I, I delegate it. <laughs> Girlfriend's pretty hot. She's, she's, she's a cool one. I'm not going to delegate that one. I've, I've been stingy on that one. 
good, but, good. But I delegate that. So, so you look at where you spend your money, you look at where you, you're ordered and you look at where you're most disciplined. And I'm very disciplined when it comes to research and teaching. I do it every single day. Now, the next one is what are you thinking about? What are you visualizing? And what are you internally dialoguing? Frontal and parietal cortex, occipital cortex, temporal cortex. What are you visually, auditorily, and can, in, in the, you know, what are you thinking about visualizing and affirming inside about how you want your life that shows evidence coming true? So I've said since I was 17 that I want to travel the world and be a great teacher on the planet and study the philosophy and, and the sciences and, and be, you know, leave a mark in teaching. And, and so that's my internal dialogue. That's my vision. I actually have a painting. I could show you a painting of me standing in front of a million people with every iconic building around the world in the background that a, a really amazing painting, five by four foot, that guy painted with a million people there, me speaking to him. So I have a visual image of that. I've got an internal dialogue that I've got that, you know, hundreds and hundreds of internal dialogues. And I think about it daily. And so I look at what I think and visualize and affirm every single day that is showing evidence of coming true about what I want in life. Not, not my fantasies. You know, I thought about being an international sex symbol, but there's zero evidence of that one. So I can't put that down. That's a zero evidence. But, but if I look at what I do have evidence of, it's teaching. And then I go and then I look at the next one. What do I want to keep bringing conversations to? And I want to talk to people. What do I lead the conversation to? People come up to you and said, how's your kids? How's your business? How's your health? How's your golf game? They always want to talk about what's in their highest values. So I look at what you want to converse most consistently with people when you can spontaneously socialize. And then I look at what it is that inspires you and brings tears to your eyes and what's common to the people who you've been absolutely inspired to watch and interact with. And then I look at what are the most consistent goals that you have that's persistent, consistent that you're achieving and you're getting to come into reality. And then I look at what you spontaneously want to learn, study, read about, watch on YouTube and absorb and information-wise. What's the most common thing you want to learn? And if you look and answer the three answers for all those 13 questions, I guarantee a pattern will emerge and you'll sit there and go, whoa, now I know what I'm really committed to, not what I fantasize about. And the degree of those inconsistency are setting real goals with real times, realistic expectations versus setting unrealistic goals that are unmet that lead to frustration. So finding out what that is and summarizing that and determining the top values to me is like a starting point in mastery of life. The last point that I wanted to pull out of you is we've now established how we understand what our values are. So the follow-up is how do we change those values if we know they're not serving us? Well, there's no such thing as values that don't serve you. But what most people do is, and, and I want everybody to inculcate this, you don't make mistakes in your own values. You only think you make a mistake when you compare your actions to some outer authority's values that you've subordinated to. And you only think other people make mistake in your business when you project your values onto them and expect them to live in your values. They're not going to. Futility is a byproduct of expecting others to live in your values or you expecting you to live in other people's values. That's why the mastery of hiring people is screening people according to what their values are and finding out whether that job description really matches their values. Because if there is, you're going to have a high engagement level and you don't need to micromanage them and you don't have to judge them because they're just going to get the job done. And they're probably going to do it more effectively than you could do. But when you hire somebody that's not congruent with that, you're going to think they're making mistakes all the time. You're going to think they're disobedient, but that's because you're 
righteously projecting your values onto them and they're supposed to read your mind and expect to live in your values and nobody can. That's why the idea of a cultural value system is murky and not really well educated out there. So you want to make sure that when you're filtering and you're looking and hiring people that you basically get somebody that really is congruent with the job description and that you can do. And I, I've got a whole science for that and how to do that. Uh, that's just amazing and a lot of companies using it. So that's one thing. Once you identify the values, then you know, to change them now, first you find out what it is because you sometimes want to change your values when you're expecting to live in somebody else's life. Envy is ignorance and imitation is suicide, as said Emerson. But if you do, let's say you're 50 years old, you've raised beautiful children, you've had a great family and everything else, and you realize, oh, empty nest syndrome, time for me to run a business or grow my wealth because, oh my God, I don't have any money saved. I get it all to the kids, take care of their college, take care of this, lived meager for the sake of my kids. Now I'm going to get Alzheimer's condition and pretend like I don't know their names so I can put some focus on what I want to do. That's a joke. But I, uh, if you want to change a value system, you identify the action steps that are proven to master that area. You know, success leaves clues. Find out the action steps that prove to get a result. And now you take those action steps and then you stack up and you use operant conditioning from Skinner or Pavlov, uh, conditioned reflexes, and you ask the question, how specifically is doing those actions helping me fulfill what I value most? And how has it helped me spiritually, mentally, career, financial, family, social, and physical? So you empower all areas of your life. And if you ask that question and answer that question and don't say, I don't know, I can't find it, but answer it, be accountable, you'll blow your mind. If you stack up enough advantages over the disadvantages, once the advantages outweigh the advantages of what you're doing currently, your brain will neuroplastically remodel itself and go in that direction with stimulus responses. You'll start doing that action. But it's got to be enough where it overrides that because of Hebbian rule in, in the neurology that it basically has to, you know, the, the oligodendrocytes in the brain come on and myelinate all the cells and they, they myelinate a new pathway. It's like a blazing a new trail if you add enough benefits to it. So you go in there and stack it up until you can see a change in behavior. So you just keep doing it. I tell people 200 benefits until the brain is completely rewired in a direction where you now stimulus and you now save your money. You now invest your money. You're now doing things. And then you, you look at all those things that are proven to work. And I've helped people that have never been able to save money or never be able to keep any money and change that. And I've seen that done in, in a 200 answer uh, response. I've, I've seen that done as quick as a day. I've seen some people do it in less than a day, but usually about a day's work of effort. And all of a sudden they're now noticing in the mall different things and they're now taking different actions because your, your, your decisions are based on whatever you believe will give it the greatest advantage or disadvantage at any moment in time, according to what you're valuing. So you can shift the values and I could remodel the values uh, to move in directions that you want. If you want more health or you want more wealth or you want more business savvy or whatever it may be, it can be. But I usually don't start there. I start with first identifying what the values are so they quit living in a fantasy of who they are and get grounded. They may not have to have a desire to change anything. They may just finally realize, hey, I'm pretty magnificent the way I am. I just never saw that because I've been comparing myself to others. Um, I think that the most interesting thing about you as an individual, before we go into some of these topics that I want to dive deep into and unpack, um, you as an individual are an exceptional individual. And the reason why I say that is because when I do even research for this podcast, a lot of the people that I speak to 
they're experts in one particular topic. And you hear them enough and they repeat a lot of the same things on maybe one, two, three different topics. The one thing that I find is fascinating about you, and I think this is a hopefully a useful skill that the audience can pick up on if they can dive into your research process, your ability to assimilate knowledge on a variety of different topics and understand it and then provide context to it. So you are, you are, uh, I, I don't want to say jack of all trades, but you do so many different things and you and you help people in so many different lanes between mindset and um, and psychology and business, but everything you teach is valuable. So for you, how uh, tell tell us about your learning process and and how you go about becoming an expert in so many different fields that have some similarities, but ultimately are not in the same lane. Because I think that's what's the most impressive thing when I look at your body of work. Well, thank you for seeing that. Uh, when I was 18 years old, I had a number of objectives that I went out for. And a gentleman, when I was 17, mentioned the word universal laws. And that sounded kind of cool. And at age 18, I watched David Carradine on Kung Fu, and he talked about his Solan master. And I thought, wow, I'd like to be a master. And those two things stuck in my mind. I also was told by the gentleman when I was 17 about waking up genius. So I had a dream at 17 and then again at 18 to want to master my life and to study universal laws. So I went in the dictionary and I said, what's a universal law? And that led me to natural laws by Aristotle. That led me to the study of the logos, which was the study of reason in the universe. And then I realized that that was the, the source of all the ologies you could study. So it could be any discipline that an individual could study was under that category. And so what I would did, I went through the dictionary and encyclopedia and looked for every knownology, every discipline a person could study. Because I figured if I was going to build a body of knowledge, I would want to have a foundation of the most consistent principles that were found throughout the different disciplines. So I made a list of all the different disciplines and ologies you could study. I still have that list on my computer today. And I made a commitment to read 100 books in each one. So I just figured I'm going to study these things and I'm going to read, you know, I'm going to try to go to the original thinker who is the founder of that discipline. So I want to study, you know, magnetism. I study Gilbert. If I want to study a different field, I go to the founder of that field. Astronomy, I may go back to Anaximander, the Greek philosopher, for instance. And I started to devour as much information because I figured that an average PhD would get about read about 100 books. And if you start stacking up PhDs, you'd end up with 100 books in each field and they'd overlap after a while. So there's a lot of duplication. So that was the dream. I want to do it because I want to have a body knowledge that was solid and I want to have polymathic understanding. I want to be an autodidactic polymath. And that really was inspired by Rene Descartes when he was reading to 
the European philosophers of the Western world. There's a textbook that had it. And he mentioned that he wanted to be a man of letters and he wanted to have a, a universal knowledge and stuff. Encyclopedias, say some people called him. And I made a commitment to write an encyclopedia. Uh, a guy named Diderot wrote an encyclopedia with another fellow that took 20 years to do. And so I decided I was going to do that and work 30, 30 pages a day on this massive piece of work that I wanted to do so I could have a better knowledge. I started reading eight complete sets of encyclopedias from cover to cover to try to get a better understanding of this. But I want to find the most universal laws to build a body of knowledge with. That was the original objective. And so now, after 30,662 books, because I keep records of them, um, I have been doing that. And people go, well, that's insane. You know, why would you want to do that? And, you know, one specialty is, you know, sufficient. And I was told all the way through this time, you know, so you got to specialize, you got to specialize. I said, well, okay. But if I specialize and I work 100 times more than the other person, um, I can do 100 of those. So I, when I was in the health profession, I studied medicine, I studied dentistry, I studied chiropractic, I studied osteopathy, I studied astronomy, I studied cancer and oncology, I did lectures on oncology, I did lectures on, I actually spoke to dentists and did conferences for dentists. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there, juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it. Each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works. One data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash Clary. That's netsuite.com slash Clary. Hiring as a small business owner is a major pain. That's why LinkedIn is supporting today's episode. You need people with the right skills and experience, but finding them can take forever. It is incredibly frustrating to keep seeing candidates who just aren't a good fit, and that's why LinkedIn Jobs has been a game changer. Let me tell you a little story. We needed to hire a graphic designer, somebody with specific tech and software knowledge and the ability to truly understand our brand. And I started with all the usual job boards, and it's the same old story. Tons of irrelevant applications. No one's really matching my needs. I tried LinkedIn jobs and the quality of candidates was just on another level. People with impressive portfolios, relevant expertise. I finally felt like I was interviewing the right people. That's truly the power of LinkedIn's massive professional network. You're tapping into this huge pool of talent you simply wouldn't find on other sites. It's about finding those niche candidates you actually need. And with the right people in front of you, hiring becomes a breeze. Did you know that 86% of small businesses find a quality 
qualified candidate on LinkedIn jobs within 24 hours. That is how well their system works. Honestly, do yourself a favor and try LinkedIn jobs next time you're hiring. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash excellence. That's linkedin.com slash excellence. Terms and conditions apply, but it's definitely worth trying out. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information. But Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay, and what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch U.S.-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text 
success, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. It's all the way up to the American Dental Association when I was 24. And I spoke at Rice University and University of Houston on astronomy, and I spoke on oncology to MD Anderson Hospital conferences. And people thought, this is a freak. This is a weird character, but he's got something to say. And so this has been my dream. And I, and I kept asking, how do I more effectively and efficiently retain information and absorb information? And I experimented with all different types of things, uh, you know, from speed reading and photo reading and all kinds of things to try to accelerate that. And I averaged in my 20s around four to seven books a day on average, about 19 to 20, 25 books a week. And, um, and I started accumulating this, this body of knowledge. And I wanted to find, I, I linked everything I studied to the evolution of human consciousness, the maximizing human awareness and potential. And so if I was studying mineralogy under geology, I'd study geology. And then I would go into the minerals and I'd look at the microorganisms that are involved in the transformation of minerals. And I looked at the minerals as chelators inside the enzymes, inside the physiology to look at the metabolic pathways. And so people go, why are you studying geology? I said, because your energy is going to be based on mitochondria, which are bacteria, <laughs> and many of them originate as, as lithophiles and extremophiles, and so I want to know how they how they metabolized and what are the mechanisms of metabolism to grow to maximize energy. So studying that field was part of one common thing, maximizing the evolution of human consciousness, maximizing awareness potential, and helping people master their lives, and evolving consciousness, and so anything, whether I'm studying astronomy, now I'm studying the origins, uh, nucleosynthesis from the Big Bang nucleosynthesis to stellar nucleosynthesis to supernova nucleosynthesis to create atoms that are involved in building the body and studying physiology of how those things work and study. So I, I broke the body down. I, I took gross anatomy down until I could take it to the quantum level. And I'm writing right now a textbook on physics. <laughs> now I'm, I'm about to present in November. So I'm constantly trying to take it from the macro to the micro and in between to study the most universal laws I could to build a body of knowledge that I could, when I deliver something, I can rely on it. So that's been my dream since I was 17, 18. And I'm just as inspired 50 years later today as I was then to, to expand my body of knowledge. And so people think I'm kind of a weirdo. My, my girlfriend calls me a freak. I just got introduced. I spoke at um, Lockdown University from the lady who heads up the Guggenheim Museum the other day, I, one of the guest speakers, the keynote speakers, and they, they introduced me as, you're about to listen to a freak. <laughs> Listen, I think that was my intro, that's, that's not a good intro. First, a good, not a good intro, but I, I <laughs> appreciate that what you've done is incredible and probably uncomfortable for a lot of people too. to, to, to even yeah. like look at, right? Like that's not an, that's not a comfortable uh, path to accumulate knowledge for a lot of people that say, well, listen, I want to become a specialist in my field. I don't, I don't even, I don't even read like, you know, a hundred books in, in that particular topic, let alone 30, 30 plus thousand. So it's, it is, it is, it, it, but it just goes to show you that there is no necessary, well, maybe there are better ways to uh, assimilate knowledge. Um, and maybe you found tricks to be able to uh, go into a book and get the most possible out of it in the shortest period of time. But I mean, ultimately, there are no uh, quick hacks to level up your intelligence. 
really. I mean, it's been 60, whatever, 50 years of reading, researching, uh, finding new bodies of work to go into, right? Yes, I, it's never ending. I, I love it. You know, something happened to me when I was 24. I, um, I well, when I was 23, I started into professional college. And the very first day there was a neurology class. And there was a there's a mention of Penfield's homunculus, which is a little image of a creature that shows the different uh, percentages of distribution of neurons to the representing the different parts of the brain and the sensory motor expression. And uh, when I thought I saw that the stomatognathic system of the jaw was the most highly represented part of the brain. And I thought, well, if I'm going to specialize in neurology and joints and the body and stuff and orthopedics and things, I, I'm going to study that. So I went to the library and I got everything on the stomatognathic system, which is a TMJ, temporal mandibular joint. And there was very little. And so I went over to the University of Texas Dental School and I, I went to their library and started to devour every book that was there. And I went to the dean and I said, if I was to specialize in TMJ, what would, what would be in my curriculum and what books and what everything I would do? He said, well, that's all listed down in the bookstore. Go find it and stuff. He wasn't much help. But, uh, so I then devoured it. And I read like 400 books on that field. And um, and I got the opportunity to lecture at a, at a little dental study group after meeting this guy at a, at a party. He said, why don't you come and speak about what you know on, on this thing? And at the end of it, they said, well, that was three hours of, of a, a, you know, deep dive. You got any more? And I said, I got plenty. And, and the, TMJ was kind of a new field at the time. There was only Harold Gelb and Nathan Shore and John Baldwin and a few other people that were leading the field. And I got to meet all these guys. I mean, I got to break bread with these guys. And all of a sudden he goes, you know, we'd like to have you come back. And so for 10 months, every single week, I was doing a presentation to these dentists. And one of them said, we, we got a Southwest Cranium and Inhibitor Society we'd like you to speak to. Can you come and present there? And I said, yeah. So I got this opportunity. And then after one guy came from there and he says, well, I got the Tri-County Dental Association Conference. We'd like to have a guest speaker. Great. I mean, I'm 24 years old. I'm not even a doctor yet, but I'm I'm hanging it. I'm going for it, you know, and I, and I love it. And then I was at this conference, the Tri-County Association, and I was supposed to speak for 30 minutes right after lunch. And they got up and introduced and said, well, we got this young man. He's not a doctor or anything like that. He's not a dentist or anything else, but he's going to do a special presentation. And people go, what? what? Who the hell is this guy? And people started to walk out. I had like a mass exodus of people going, why were we going to sit? We're, we're going to go out and just have some coffee. This is ridiculous. And the guy gets backed up there and he introduces me again. He says, well, hold on a minute. My introduction wasn't sufficient. You know, Harold Gelb, as you know, out of New York, and Nathan Shore, as you know, has written textbook on the field. And John Baldwin right here in Houston has said they learned more from this young character than they've learned from their professors and they said they, they were the one that recommended him. And so we, really? So they all stood by the door. That's funny. <laughs> all these guys are standing by the door with their teams. And I start speaking. And um, they started to come back and sit down after a while because I, you know, I started talking about this, this, the brain. It started to be interesting. <laughs> yeah. And then all of a sudden, the three of the speakers for the afternoon gave up their time and let me speak for four hours. I got four hour presentation. Wow. Now, here's what was cool. There's the best part. 
during the presentation, there was a real heckling guy, a real skeptic guy, and he just really was upset that, you know, how dare you let a guy that's not a doctor in our field be a speaker? And he threw out a challenging question. And out of the blue, mysteriously, a photographic image of Gray's anatomy, the answer that I get, to give him an answer, I saw this page and I started to share it and read the page as if it was sitting in front of my eyes. And I started reading on this page, the top of the thing under this caption, I started reading this thing. And 75, I guess, pieces of paper from all the different attendees, they started throwing paper at this guy and said, let the guy speak, quit hassling him. And when I did that, I went, I didn't know I knew that. And I then I learned something really cool about speed reading. There's an explicit memory and an implicit memory. And explicit memory is what you remember what you read. And there's an implicit stuff that went into your brain that you didn't remember it. But once somebody asks you a question that's highly informative and important, it comes out. And I learned a whole other thing about learning that I didn't know before, that I hadn't read anywhere, that every human being has a set of priorities, a set of values in their life. And whatever's highest on your value is an intrinsic value. Whatever's low is becomes more extrinsic. The things that are lower, you need motivation to get you to do. But the things highest is spontaneously inspired to do it. That once you make a link between the knowledge you've absorbed through your senses and that highest value, it comes to the conscious. It goes from implicit to explicit. And I didn't know I knew things. So then after that, I said, okay, I don't need to, rem I don't need to remember while I'm reading. I just need to get my eyes exposed to the page. And then when I need it, and it's important to me, it'll come to the surface. And that was a big turning point at age 24 on, on accelerating. So I started reading. I, one day I read 11,000 pages of material just to find out what I was capable of doing. And then I used to do presentations where nothing but Q&A just to find out, ask questions. I had no idea what I was going to get involved in. I'd push myself to, to, to go on to conferences and talks and things that I had really I read about it, but, you know, didn't know what I knew. And boom, all this information would come out when I needed it. And that was a major breakthrough. And I, then I developed a way of helping people absorb information, retain information, apply it, and use it creatively. Uh, and started teaching kids this and, uh, you know, uh, other people. I've gone into colleges and universities and high schools and stuff to help people absorb information. So that was really a, a, a turning point at 24 so I didn't have any anxiety about learning. I didn't really worry about it. And people go, why are you doing it? I said, because I want to know. I'm mm -hmm. like the man who wants to know. That's all. I just love learning. And, and whether I get to use it immediately or not, I know it's there when I need it. And what is, and over, over the years now, um, you've discovered that when you were 24, what, what is the strategy to, um, cause I'm sure you figured this out as well, improve the recall of that subconscious information that you've assimilated or read because you mentioned one thing interesting uh, that was interesting. You align if that information aligns with your highest values, it's easy to recall almost instantaneously, even if you haven't remembered it. The second you close the book, it's going to come back at some point in time and you're going to be able to pull it up. But there must be some yeah. strategy that you use now to purposefully pull it yes. up so that even if you're not in a high oh, stress yes. situation, you can still get that information out of you. I found out a really interesting principle. Uh, and this a couple of Nobel Prize came out of this on the place cells and grid cells in the hippocampus and, and interrhinal complex of the brain and how we sort uh, social information and other information. And I found out that uh, since you have a sensory and a motor 
system, if you take in information and disseminate that information spontaneously, your retention goes up. So the faster you give out what you learned, the higher the retention. In other words, the more the more you add space and time to your mind, the more distorted subjectively the information and the more you extract out space and time in mind, become really present and disseminate the information to somebody just after you got it. The faster that is, the greater and more longevity, the, the retention. So I, once I learned that at, at 23, I was learning part of that, but 24, I really got that. Uh, I started to get up at two o'clock in the morning. I used to sleep four hours a day for 35 years. I did that. And I get up at two o'clock in the morning. I would do yoga and meditation and just visualize my, my, my day, what I'm intending to accomplish and started reading. So I would have stacks of book with a sheet of paper on it for the day. We, I'd, I'd pre-think them for the, that. That way I could advertise my presentations for the night. And I would speed read four to seven books on average in the morning in a four-hour period, go jogging, run it through my mind as I'm jogging, come back, go to my classes. Some of the classes I got to place out of and some of them I got to teach, which was great. That helped me retain more information. And then I go to clinic and then I come back and then I would start teaching at 7 to 10 p.m. every single night. And there was always students there. <laughs> I made my first $100,000 as a student when I was 23 uh, doing classes every night, seven nights a week. But what they didn't realize is I was doing the classes on what I read that morning to make sure that I didn't go to bed without sharing what I just learned. And I found that that accelerated my, my learning capacities vastly. And so I would buy the books, 40 to 70 books a week on average, and put them in the thing and stack them up and pre-think them out and think the topics, put the topics out there, advertise the topics, and then organize those books by the, by the day throughout the week, and then share that information uh, each night and engage in questions, as much questions to bring it out of me. So I, I purposely structured it when I would maximize my learning. And most people were interested in passing tests. I, I never even factored, never thought about tests. The tests were not my thing because tests, I always say, are, are, are insignificant. In fact, when I was studying neurology, uh, I, I read way more books than what were required. It was like you had this textbook, right? Well, I read, read like 50 books by the time I took that class. And so the teacher gave out these questions. You had A or B or C and two of the above and three of the above, you know, that kind of questions. And I wrote in answers that weren't on the question, that weren't unlisted, and crossed out things and, and answered according to what I knew about neurology at the time. And the teacher failed me. <laughs> he failed me. And I, and I walked into him with 49 books on neurology. And I walked into his office. I said, how dare you fail me? How could you fail me? He said, you can't answer a test by crossing out the answers and throwing in another answer and doing it. You can't play tricks like that on a test. And I said, I can too. And I said, who are you as the authority to tell me I can't? And I brought in all the authorities and show them every one of the answers that I did on the, the neurology text. And he goes, you read all these books? I said, yeah, and they're all underlined. And here's my reference to why I put it in there and why you're outdated on some of this. Hmm. And he goes, you're out of my class. You're placed out. I can't have you in my class. This is ridiculous. And I said, well, I don't want to be out of the class. I, I want to be in the class because I'm going to learn something. But at the same time, I'm, I'm serious about neurology. So I don't want to just read one textbook. That's not enough. That's just an opinion. I want to get a body of knowledge. He says, that's insane. I mean, you're, you're, you're a freak. And I said, 
I said, but I came here to learn. I didn't come here to pass a test. <laughs> so three weeks later, he got in trouble because he had a little fling with one of the ladies at the school and he got suspended for a month. And he said, John, can you take over my class? <laughs> do you think, do you think so that I got to teach? No, I was going to say, I was going to say, um, that's, first of all, that's incredible. Um, I want to, I want to also understand, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. You keep going with your story, but I also want to understand when you look at the way that you've learned over your career versus the way people learn now, which is audibles, podcasts, YouTube videos, for example, which, which way do you think is a, a more permanent way of, of taking knowledge, implanting it in your brain and making sure that it's with you for the long term. Because now you put out a lot of educational videos and content too, but, and you can still go through your story. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I'm just curious if you see a, an issue with the way that people try to almost conveniently learn new things in terms of effectiveness. Well, that's a good question. You know, I, I studied with Bander and Grinder in 1978-9 uh, NLP. And they were, in those days you had this... <clears throat> this idea that you had visual-oriented, auditory, and kinesthetic-oriented learning process and accessing cues and stuff. <clears throat> and I found out that those are wounds that are creating that. We're all gestalt, but if we have a wound in our life that's emotional, that we've associated pain with visual, we've seen something visually as painful, we'll shut down that learning accessing system and we'll go into kinesthetic or we'll go into a different system. And I developed later systems on how to dissolve those wounds so you could access information gestalt-wise all, through all of them, more integrative knowledge. But I, I noticed that I did them all. I, that's, in fact, what, what made me, what uh, Banner was interested. I was at a seminar and I asked him a question and, and then confronted him on the answer because it was a bogus answer. And he, he said, how did you get, I mean, you're processing, he's watching my eye movements and says, says he wanted to talk to me about how I'm processing information because he said, I'd like to duplicate that. But I found out that when I was in, in school, I, uh, there were audio cassettes in those days and there were video, those big video, uh, whatever they were called, and the, the big ones, you know? Yeah. <laughs> VHS, going back this, I think yes. they called them. Yes. Yeah, VHS, I think. VHS. DVD. <laughs> DVDs didn't come until the 90s or whatever, you know? Yeah. Or late, late 80s and 90s. So I had them all going. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't waste my time. If I was showering, I had an audio on, you know, if I was, uh, I would speed read and I'd still have an audio going. And I sleep at night, I had audios and, and uh, I didn't care. I, I used every vehicle I could. So I didn't have any waste of time. I didn't waste any time. I used to, I, I calculated that I could go, by the time I walked from my office to the bathroom, I could read 10 pages and come back another 10 pages. And then if I went to lunch, I could read, you know, 40 pages and 40 pages. And then while waiting for food, I could knock it. And I figured I could knock out a book, uh, an extra book uh, easily during a day during breaks. So I was using my time efficiently. And I was also listening to audios. And I was, if I was on a car, I, you know, I couldn't read, but I would listen to audios or video, watch videos or something. I did whatever I could to feed my mind because I learned that if I don't feed my mind with what I love in it, it feeds up with what I don't. Just like if you don't prioritize your day and fill your day with high priority actions, it fills up with low priority distractions. And if you don't spend your money on assets, you end up with liabilities and consumable depreciables that fill up your house with junk. So I learned about prioritization and I use all of them. And some people will probably think that they're audio oriented or video oriented, 
the real them, the real authentic self is Gestalt, but they'll use that because they got wounds and stuff there. But they clear it, they'll absorb information through every vehicle, smell, taste, every one of them. So I just say, use them all. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't try to exclude any of them. I use every access you can to get uh, feed yourself knowledge. You want to prioritize what you do. I, I asked people when I taught speed reading courses years ago, I asked people, you know, write down how many books you read a month. And they'd write down one or they'd write down 10 or what if 20 or whatever it is. And I said, now multiply how many months in a year, 12, multiply how many years you plan on living left. And they go, uh, 40 years or 50 years. Okay. 50 years times one a month. That's 12 times 50. That's, you know, 60 books, uh, 600 books. And I go, okay. So now the question is what's, what are you going to feed your mind? You're only going to read 600 books at the rate you're going. If you don't speed read that, you're going to, you're going to limit it to 600 books. What's the highest priority 600 books you're going to feed your mind to give yourself an advantage. <laughs> reading for a purpose is way more powerful than reading for pleasure. Cause that's using an escape from an unfulfilled life. Reading with a purpose gives you competitive advantage. So what are you going to prioritize? So I teach people to prioritize what they're feeding their mind. Fires prioritize what you, if you're going to watch something on videos, prioritize it. You know, many people just, turn on a tv and allow whatever goes in there and to me that's that's unless uh i don't watch tv unless i'm on it <laughs> i just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode nordvpn now if you've ever missed out on your favorite shows because it's not available in your country or if you're trying to keep your private time private you don't want people spying on what you're doing well let me introduce you to nordvpn if you're bored of us netflix why not take a spin in the uk use nordvpn click of a button you can do just that you want to watch your favorite anime, you don't have to travel to Japan. NordVPN brings it right to you with 5,000 plus server options. No show is out of reach. And of course, we all love to binge TV and Netflix, but privacy is a big deal too. NordVPN keeps your information encrypted, so you never have to worry about your IP or location getting out. They've also doubled down on keeping you safe with their new threat protection feature. Say goodbye to intrusive web ads and malware. Even if you download an infected file, threat protection kicks in and deletes it before it makes a mess of your computer. And don't forget, if you're trying NordVPN, there is literally no risk to you. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee. Give it a try. If you like it, great. If you don't, they'll issue you a refund. You can pretend it never happened. They gave a special discount for Success Story podcast listeners. They gave a special offer. So go to my link at nordvpn.com slash success story to get your subscription started today. It's, it's almost chaotic, did, chaotic and wasteful almost. I, 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 hear, I hear what you're saying. Um, and the, the follow-up question would be what you originally did, which was found um, the the leaders in every single ology in every single field. How do you recommend people find uh, those leaders that produce the works that are the original works that are the that are the six hundred that they should prioritize? Who should they look for? Who are well, the people that you default to as like the leader in that field? How what's your process for finding that person? Well, where I live here, the the guy from Google, who's the brains behind Google, I, I chat with him quite a bit, and he. Uh, <clears throat> today you go on Google or you go on, you know, Microsoft Bing or some sort of uh, search engine or whatever, and you just look up founder of, originator of, and you get there really quick. But when the old days before we had that, um, you'd sometimes have to go to an encyclopedia and try to find it. Or what you do is you go to the start by looking at the field in a library. You go to the library and look at the area and then go to the books and look at all the references. And then the reference would start lead you back to the original people. Usually in a, in a college course, they start from the originator. 
and they worked their way forward. So I would go that, that route originally by going into back of books and looking at the bibliographies. But after a while, uh, the encyclopedias say founder or father or originator of, and then I'd go geology, right? Or, or whatever it is. And um, then I'd go that way and I'd start there because I wanted to create original ideas that serve. That's been my affirmation. I create original ideas that serve humanities throughout the world. I create original ideas that serve humanities throughout the world. And so I wanted to go to people who are the originators that create original work, that created the new neologies that founded those things, that had the courage to step out and not be, you know, part of the herd, but be heard. And so that's why I went to those people. And I have a young, young man who is an eight-year-old savant. When I met him, he's now 20. He was just on the front cover of a disruptive magazine the other day. Uh, he's read 14,000 books. He's 20 years old and he's a bright guy. He's one of my uh, top students. And uh, he he did the same thing. I told him that when he was eight, because he was reading, going to the books bookstore, and his dad would buy him books, but he would read them by the time he would get to the checkout counter. Because he was, I, I saw him read a 800 page. Uh, I, I took him to the Institute of Advanced Studies at Princeton, and we met with Freeman J. Dyson, who's an astrophysicist that took over Albert Einstein's position, and we went and had a, a dialogue for four hours with this nine-year-old kid and myself and and Freeman, and we were discussing things. And there was a book there from a Hungarian uh, guy who had, on astrophysics that Freeman was just getting to start and read, who he knew. And um, so the kid, as we were doing it while we we're waiting, read the book in four minutes. And then we had a discussion on that book, and Freeman just he went, "Oh God, <laughs> so when, what am I dealing when you with say here?" When you say something like reading, speed reading a book in four minutes, I find all of this fascinating. And funny enough, this is actually. None of the stuff that I wanted to actually speak to you about, but I think that the concept of learning is probably the most fundamental thing that we could teach over to the audience. I mean, if they can understand the concept of optimized learning, then everything else will flow from that. So I think this is a good, a good use of time. So when you even speak yeah. about reading a book in four minutes, to everyone listening is like, that's absurd. So maybe even explain the concept, uh, the speed reading concept and how to actually accomplish that so that you can still get that level of understanding from the book and you can pull it up later on and then even teach it over <laughs> and all the other tricks to make sure that well that I, 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 I can't I, I can't say that I pulled that off myself this kid no 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 but this kid okay so the kid's a this savant kid is, but somewhere in between the kid he's, and you and the rest of the world <laughs> yeah I've never done a four minute book not, not that size <laughs> uh, maybe maybe I, I did a a 10 volume series in one evening um, in about four hours. So that's about as good as I get on it. But um, but this kid just photoed, he just turned pages. We're watching him, right? And he just photos it, photos it, photos it, and then he can he can produce it. And it's like it's, it's a bit freakish, but <clears throat> Kids, you know, savant, and they're they're really people out there that can do this kind of stuff. It's just like no, no. Okay, so how does how does the average person? How does the average person? You pick up a book. The average person, what's what's the concept of speed reading? How fast can they go through things so that there's still some retention? If you can't just photograph pages, well, it, if you practice it, I have a friend who's in South Africa that teach people speed reading, and frankly, you can train your brain to do it. It's not impossible to do. Most people read is because they're taught by phonemes. They're taught by sounds. So as fast as they can speak, as fast as they can read. If you're a fast reader, it's because you're a fast speaker. I'm a fast speaker, there's help, but I also know how to do photo or visual reading. But this guy in South Africa trains people how to photo read. 
and Sheila also teaches people that. There's a number of people that teach that. Uh, I didn't learn that. I, I I didn't pick that up much later. I just asked what worked, what didn't work every day. But you can move from a you know a verbal reading to gradually a, a visual reading by doing some exercises. Um, very simple. If if I was to have you move your eyes in a circle really slowly, your eyes would make jerky movements as it went around in a circle. You, you can't make a smooth circle. But if I put a finger in front of you and I make you follow my finger, your eyes can do a perfect circle. So a visual guide guiding your eyes has less uh, back skips and back wanders and forward skips and forward wanders. And most forward wanders and back skips and things are due to phobias associated with words and symbols and things about the author that make you want to go back and avoid moving forward fast. And sometimes things you feel guilty in your life make you move forward. And so if you have emotions, phobias and philias or prides and shames, you're not present when you read and your focal fixation point gets really narrow and you can't absorb information effectively. And that's why you go, well, I don't even remember what I read. But if you're inspired by it, you've linked it to the highest value, you're using a visual guide and you're getting present and you actually love the topic, your focal fixation point can grow. And you can start snapshotting symbols and then words, and then you can get a bigger vision. And just with training, you can make it where you can just snapshot a page. That's totally doable. People do it. So it's it's a training process. And if you have a value on doing it, you'll do it. The kid loved to learn. This, this kid was unique. When he was eight months old, he was already pointing to finger, his spelling at, at eight months old, and it was spelling. And it was just a phenomenal thing this kid was doing. And Amazing. he still has difficulty speaking but he can read and absorb information and consult. He consults with consult, uh, major consulting now at 20 years old and gets paid like 1300 an hour to do consulting. <laughs> I love, okay. So I wanna, I wanna go into two more topics that we did not go into yet. This is fascinating. I appreciate you a lot. Um, the two topics that you speak on that are probably the most widely viewed in your repertoire uh, of all the content you've put out are intimidation and depression. And I think that these are interesting topics um, because everybody deals with them uh, and they all they all experience them, excuse me, and they all deal with them in, in different ways. So I'd like to go into both of those. So first, let's start with, and obviously these are probably topics that could take their own podcast, but for people listening, let's do like a, a Cole's notes as, as much as possible so that they can at least get some value about if they're dealing with these feelings in their life, how can they go about better preparing themselves and handling their reality? So intimidation first. Um, how can you deal with intimidation? Okay, that's that's really quite fun. Um, <clears throat> so I'll give a story first and then I'll elaborate. I had a lady who was standing up about to give a speech and she froze. And she just froze. The whole room is like waiting for her to do it. And the person that introduced her was like walking back towards the thing and going, she's just standing there. And so I took it upon myself to walk up onto the stage. And when I did, I grabbed a piece of paper on my way up and I rolled it up into a tube. And I said, you're freezing and there's an anxiety about speaking and you're freezing. And she goes, yes. I said, I'd like to help you because this is a, a great opportunity. And so I rolled up this tube and I said, you're not frightened of speaking in front of this group. You're frightened of speaking around in front of only certain people in this group. Let me show you. So I did this little tube and made her look through the audience at each face 
in the audience one by one. It wasn't a big audience. And um, I said, which one of those people is the intimidated, the person you're intimidated by? Because you walked into a room and you spotted certain people and you immediately froze. Because if you're, because if, if you went up to somebody and said, I want you to speak and do a presentation in front of kindergarten class, you'd have no problem. Of course. Pardon me, there's somebody calling the room. That wasn't anticipated. No worries. But if, if you're in front of a kindergarten class and uh, you wouldn't have a problem. If I went and took you in front of first grade class, you wouldn't have a problem. If I went to the second grade class, probably wouldn't have a class. But the second you get to a, somebody where you think they have more knowledge than you and more specialty than you, you now freeze. The moment you are too humble to admit what you see in them inside you, you'll freeze because you'll give them power and then you'll put them above you and you'll minimize in relative terms. And that's all public speaking fear is. It's nothing but that. So I went up there and she found this lady in the audience that was an expert and she was talking about something and felt intimidated by this lady because she thought that lady had more knowledge than her. So I said, all right, so you perceive that that lady has more knowledge and more credibility, credentials. Great. Where do you have knowledge? I asked her, where do you have knowledge? Everybody has a unique set of values and whatever's highest on our value, we have knowledge in. Whatever's low in a value, we have less knowledge. In other words, a guy could go and get a PhD. I, I met a guy in Tennessee that got a PhD on William James' life. So he studied a tiny little fraction of a human being's life and got a PhD and had more knowledge, even though he only studied a fraction of a person's life. But this lady had a whole life. She was a mature lady, had a whole life. So she has multiple PhDs worth of knowledge, but is not honoring the topic she's speaking on uh, not uh, acknowledging her knowledge. She's given more power to this other lady because of the specialty. So I asked her, where does she have knowledge? And I made her stand up there. We took about 10 minutes. Where's the knowledge? Where's her knowledge? Where's her knowledge? Where's her knowledge? Until she saw equal quality and knowledge. Hmm. And she looked and she got a tear in the eye. She goes, I'm not frightened by that lady now. Now what it, we'll go around and we found this other lady and she says, she's sophisticated and she's very wealthy and she's very thing. And I'm going to, the topic I'm talking about is going to, I would feel intimidated by that. I said, where's your wealth? Everybody has wealth in the area of their highest values. They have a wealth in their children. They have wealth in their social context. They have wealth financially, have wealth in business knowledge, wealth academically, wealth spiritually. Wealth is in different forms. And if you compare your form to somebody else's and think their form is better than your form, you're going to minimize yourself. So I made her go in and identify where her wealth was. And this is an education of the group. People were into it. You know, we were working together on this. And then we had another person who had social influence. And where does she have social influence? So it took about 20 minutes to do this. When I got through and I had her own every one of those and realized that she's no longer too humble to admit what she sees in them inside herself. And she had reflective awareness where the seer, the seeing, and the seen were the same. And no longer too humble and minimizing herself to something like that. And I got a tear in each one of those in, in the realization of that. I said, now look out. She's scared. Any more intimidation? She goes, no. I said, thank you very much. I got been off the stage and she did an amazing presentation and got a standing ovation. Wow. So that's. So, so her so intimidation. That, yeah. Intimidation is nothing more than the assumption that somebody has something more than you in the area that you're going to about to present. That's it. And the second you realize you have it in your own form, not their form. I, I, if I was to compare myself to Arnold Schwarzenegger, 
I, I and and admire him for his diligence and his workouts and stuff like that, I'd be intimidated because I'm I'm comparing myself to his workouts. But if I do look at his diligence and his dedication, I can immediately go, I've got the delegation, the, the dedication and the diligence in my studies that he doesn't have. So we have equal in that trait. He just happens to have it in his specialty. Once I level the playing field, I'm not intimidated by it. I'm just speaking about what I know. So it's it's about a reflective awareness. Reflective awareness transcends um, exaggerations and minimizations of other people. I, I've developed a whole science on how to transcend that, that I take salespeople through and they go, I can go to any any major player and I can now do a sale because I'm no longer intimidated. But but there's a science behind it. And it's basically asking quality questions to make you conscious of what's unconscious because nothing's missing in you. I always say at the level of our most authentic self, nothing's missing. At the level of our senses, we are too proud or too humble to admit what we see in others inside us. And that's where we get intimidated or we try to intimidate. And both of those are unproductive, non-sustainable, fair exchange mechanisms of communication. So yeah, I just show people how to do it. Intimidation is not that difficult to transcend. Do you find that after somebody goes through this exercise a few times that it starts to become uh, their, their de facto, their, their, almost like the, their uh, default state of approaching an intimidating situation? Is this something that get, gets ingrained in them? Uh, no, if they, anytime they have that perception, I, I first learned this, I was 27 when I first learned this process. I got asked to speak to 70 of the leading former oil executives in Houston, Texas at the Hyatt Regency Hotel. I was 27. I just opened up my shingle and opened up my office. And the topic, success and achievement. <laughs> These guys are in their 70s. And there's 70 of them in a room all sitting around round tables right after luncheon. And I'm supposed to speak on success. They're retiring and they've had multi-million dollar businesses. I'm just starting out, just started my practice. And I'm thinking, I'm standing behind stage and I'm going, what I imagined myself speaking about just doesn't look exactly appropriate now that I see the audience. Um, these guys are seasoned. I was expecting, you know, a little bit younger guys. And so I immediately thought, okay, I'm now feeling a little anxious. And I'm thinking, what am I going to do? And as I was walking down the thing and they were introducing me, I'm stepping up onto the stage. This ingenious idea came out. I realized that everybody just about has a fear of public speaking. That's a big thing. So what I thought I'd do is my, spe my speech started out this way. I said, um, everybody repeat and then write this down. So they, they, they took command and they, they got a piece of paper out. Get a piece of paper out, write this down. As long as you're green, you're growing. As soon as you ripen, you rot. That was my opening line. <laughs> and people are going, what is this? And I said, as long as you're green, you're growing. As soon as you ripen, you're rot. If you're committed uh, to doing something, you're, gr you're growing. But if you've ripened and you're rotting, then that's it. So if you're 70 years old and you're retired and you're not doing anything, you're rotting. You're rotting. You so call I them said, all if, out. If you're, if, you're, <laughs> if, you're green and, if you're green, you're growing. If you're, that means you're growing. You're learning something. So I got off the stage. I took the microphone. I knew they had a fear of public speaking probably in front of their peers. And I said, so what is your biggest fear that you're breaking through right now? And that what is the mission that you're on now that you've retired? And now they got the fear of public speaking. And I'm in command it. with the microphone. And all of a sudden they're going, oh my God, what will people think if I don't say the right thing? And they're all like, uh, 
And I went around the room and made them all do it. They're like frightened of being the next person in line to, you know, and I did the whole thing. At the end, they gave me a standing ovation. I never gave a speech. I just put them through all the fears that I was starting with. <laughs> it's all about, it's, again, it's about, it's about reframing your expertise and your specialty against the audience that you're, you're stressed out about and intimidated by. That's, that's yeah, what you did. But, that don't ever, but if you want to do really well in the speaking is make sure you have at least four times the amount of material presented. So there's no M's and O's and the, the kind of stuff. So if you've got a half hour talk or an hour talk, have four hours of material ready where it's just comes, it's, it's, you want to pour out with it. And uh, you won't hem and haw and only talk about what's something you know about until you gain right. confidence to be able to do that implicit. <laughs> to do what uh, you learning. did. <laughs> to yeah. do what you did. <laughs> um, no, that's not fair. You did know about it. You just you just learned about it very quickly. Okay. Um, I just only half yeah. of me only half of me knew about me knowing about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Last top uh, last topic, which I want to go into, which is very important. Um you have a controversial, well, I would say controversial take on depression. Uh, I want you to understand, I want you to understand, I want the audience to understand what your view on depression is. Um, it's one of your most watched YouTube videos of all time. So obviously it's topical. So what is depression? What isn't it? And how do you deal with it? Well, I've worked with thousands of people with depression. So I, I feel very confident in tackling it. And you saw two weeks ago or two and a half weeks ago, the biochemical model, which I've been debunking since 1990, uh, just fell because research just proved that that was a pharmaceutical uh, marketing gimmick and um, to sell drugs. But what was interesting is depression, I, I define as a comparison of your current reality to an unrealistic expectation, delusion, or fantasy that you're addicted to. And you're holding on to an expectation. Now, let me give you some samples of that. Every human being lives by a set of priorities and set of values. And whatever's high in the value, they spontaneously make perception, decisions, and actions accordingly. And every action they take is based on what they believe will give them the greatest advantage or disadvantage in that moment. So you can only expect a human being to live in their values and to do what they think with the information they're presented with, whatever's going to give them the greatest advantage in that moment. That's that's what you can expect some human being to do. Anything else than that's crazy. If you hire somebody in a job and you don't know what their top values are, then you're probably going to end up with problems because you're going to expect them to be doing something they're not going to do. You got to know what that is. Now, what people do is they have unrealistic expectations on other people to live in their values, not the individual's values. And then they end up with anger and aggression, blame and betrayal, criticism and challenge, despair and depression, desire to exit and escape, futility and frustration, grouchiness and grief, hatred, hurt, irritability and sanity, which is the underlying foundation for depression. They also have expectations on human beings because of moral hypocrisies taught by traditions and conventions and mores of society that you're supposed to be one-sided. And perfection is one-sided. Nice, never mean, kind, never cruel, positive, never negative, peaceful, never wrathful you know, giving, never taking. And these one-sided fantasies and unrealistic expectations nobody can live by. So when you have an unrealistic expectation on somebody to live in your values, not their own, and to make decisions based on your priorities, not theirs, and expect them to be one-sided, support, never challenge, you have a fantasy and a delusion that is guaranteed to create the ABCDs of negativity and depression. You add those together and compound those, you got even more. Then you do that on yourself. You expect yourself to live outside your values, expect your, and this happens every time you get infatuated or intimidated by somebody and fit into society and wear your, your little chameleon mask. 
You end up trying to fit into people and do something that's not really yours. Almost everybody that's ever been infatuated with some new partner will do things they don't normally do to fit in for fear of loss of that partner and sacrifice a whole bunch of stuff and then store that as a memory of what they sacrificed in the relationship. So you got to, if you're expecting yourself to be living in somebody else's values, you're going to end up being angry at yourself and depressed with yourself. If you expect yourself to be one side, always positive, never down, you're going to have an unrealistic expectation yourself. Now, if you expect the world to be living in your values and the world to be one-sided, peace, never war, you've got unrealistic expectations. And these things compound and accumulate and they're stored in the subconscious mind and they're running our amygdalas, impulses and instincts and they're basically making a search for the fantasy to avoid the predator and try to avoid this challenge. And it's self-imposed. So I take people and ask them a simple question. If you're depressed, if you have the feeling of depression, you have content in the mind. You can't have fear of the unknown. You can't have depression of the unknown. You can only have what's on the mind at that moment. Because people can be depressed and then all of a sudden something else happens. They're preoccupied. They're not focused on their depression. They're not because the content changed. If I go and find out the content, I ask them a question. What are you comparing your current reality to? Because anytime you compare your current reality to anything other than your current reality, you have a delusion. <laughs> if you think that it should have been this, it why isn't it this? Why am I not doing this? You're, you're comparing it to some idea about something that's not even real. It's something you can conjure up in your mind abstractly. So you ask yourself, what exactly are you comparing your current reality to that's not fulfilling your, your fantasy? And then I find out what the fantasy is. And then I find out what's the drawback if you got the fantasy and what's the benefit of the current reality and bring those down. What's interesting is as you do that, dopamine levels change, serotonin levels change, encephalons change, osteocalcin change, testosterone, estrogen. I can take every one of the signal molecules and transmitters in the brain and I can ask questions and I can rise them and, and make them rise and fall. If I ask you questions that make you feel more proud, I can make your serotonin go up. If I ask questions that hum humble you and humiliate you, I can bring your serotonin down. If I make you uh, ask you a question, where have you exceeded your expectations? I can make dopamine go up. I can make every one of those transmitters go up and down with question because the, the quality of your life is based on the quality of the questions you ask. And the ratios of your perceptions are determining the ratios of these transmitters. When I taught embryology, I, I looked at all the signal molecules and epigenetics and traced them all the way into endocrinology and found out these patterns and found out what turned them on and turned them off. And I guarantee you, we can do that without having to take a drug. The pharmaceutical industry is nowhere near as powerful as what our brain is capable of doing if we know how to use our brain effectively. So I'd much rather help them see those and break their delusions and unrealistic expectations and fantasies and appreciate their life. Because life is magnificent the way it is, but if you compare it to the way it should be and you fantasize, I mean, I, I've seen marriages break down because a female or a male has a fantasy and they, they get this guy or, or the girl gets this guy and they have a fantasy of how they're going to make them, what they're going to turn them into. And then they're having an affair with the fantasy person and then pushing when they're not matching the fantasy and then wondering why the guy has the affair and then, you know, angry at them for not living up the fantasy and bitter and want to get revenge over something that's concocted as a fantasy in their own mind. Men and women do this about how they're supposed to be in their relationships. I train people on how to transcend that so they're not trapped in these anger generators that they create self-imposed. So unrealistic expectations that are not lived up to underlie these things. And, and psychiatrists don't like that because they're a pharmaceutical model and they're used to giving out a drug. But 
and I've studied neurology. I can I can tackle them on the neurology and the neurochemistry. I have no problem with that. But their model is not practical. A, a therapist is, you know, a psychologist works with practical therapies. Psychiatrist is a is basically sells a drug. They give you this. If that doesn't work, try this. If that doesn't work, try this. The serotonin, the norepinephrine, and the uh, the dopamine uptake inhibitors. They put those in there to try to get those chemistries a little higher in concentration in the bloodstream in the brain. But that's not the most efficient way of doing it, in my opinion. And it's not giving people their power. It's robbing of their power instead of giving people their power back and training them how to master their perceptions, decisions, and actions. I love it. I, I appreciate that. And and for people that are listening, that where this message resonates with them, uh, who are the who are the individuals outside of yourself? Is there a certain practice of therapy that falls in line with this type of remedy for depression? Where would people go to explore more? And then we'll also ask just where well, people go to get more of you. But in, for in this particular, uh, it, with depression and therapy in general, more specifically, how do people go find out more and go get help if this is something that they well, want to go explore? I, I've personally trained 7,000 people in, in using the methods on that. So I've got 7,000 out there around the world helping people with that. Uh, but there's, there's a psychiatrist that are also starting to study those types of things. There's lots of psychotherapists and therapists that are learning those methods. There's cognitive reappraisal methods. There's a lot of semi-close approaches that are emerging, you know, in, in some positive psychologies. The problem with that, the positive movement is the idea that you're expecting people to get always up. And this is this is foolish. Nobody's gonna stay up. I did a research for two years. I could spend now my I've got another podcast in a minute. And uh, I mean, another meeting, man. But I, I could easily show you that it's a futile thing trying to be up all the time. That's a fantasy. You know, don't waste your time trying to be one-sided. Bipolar condition is a byproduct of monopolar addiction and subdictions. And we go through and we try to be one-sided people, and that's guaranteed to let you down. So there are therapists out there, and there's varying degrees of them, varying degree of skills. Um, but not all of them do that. Some are on the victim model. And they immediately say it's biochemical imbalance. They fell for the pharmaceutical model. And they just basically say, well, you know, go, go to your psychiatrist on that. I don't want to tackle that. Others work through their complexes and conflicts they have. So you have a whole spectrum of people working with it. <clears throat> but I personally trained 7,000 people on how to deal with that. Amazing. Okay, so let's wrap this up. So where should people go to get more of you, your social, your website, and then I also want you to answer the one question that I ask everyone after you drop all your all your handles and whatnot. What does success mean to you? I don't use the word success. I, I use the word fulfillment because success is a succession. And it usually means if you if you I would say success is a depurposing state, failure is a repurposing system. They're both homeostatic feedback, negative feedback systems trying to get you to be authentic and uh, be a, an individual on a mission in life. So I don't pursue success. I think that's self-defeating. But fulfillment, I do. <clears throat> but I would define somebody with fulfillment as somebody who identifies what their hierarchy of values is and structures their life according to priority, delegating the lower priority things and sticking to the things that are deeply meaningful, fulfilling that they spontaneously love do so they maximize their energy, fulfillment, and meaning in their life. And that may be raising children. That may be uh, being a... A pole vaulter, it may be, you know, racing, it may be running a massive business, it may be being an entrepreneur, it may be uh, uh, an architect, it may be some academic. Mine is teaching. 
if if I structure my life, I've delegated everything. All I do is teach, research, and write. Everything else is delegated out. I haven't driven a car in 32 years. I, you know, I don't cook. I, I have people specialists doing everything except those three things. And doing what you love and loving what you do on a daily basis to me is is fulfillment. And so I don't like to use the term success on it, but some people it. use that term for it. And where do people go and meet uh, meet you? Meet you, get more of your content, YouTube, social, website, all of that. If if they want to go to just drdmartini.com, they could they're gonna to have to be a Buddhist believing in reincarnation to be able to read everything on there and see everything on there because it's gonna take more than one lifetime. <laughs>I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it. Each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash That's netsuite.com slash Hiring as a small business owner is a major pain. That's why LinkedIn is supporting today's episode. You need people with the right skills and experience, but finding them can take forever. It is incredibly frustrating to keep seeing candidates who just aren't a good fit, and that's why LinkedIn Jobs has been a game changer. Let me tell you a little story. We needed to hire a graphic designer, somebody with specific tech and software knowledge and the ability to truly understand our brand. And I started with all the usual job boards, and it's the same old story. Tons of irrelevant applications. No one's really matching my needs. I tried LinkedIn Jobs and the quality of candidates was just on another level. People with impressive portfolios, relevant expertise. I finally felt like I was interviewing the right people. That's truly the power of LinkedIn's massive professional network. You're tapping into this huge pool of talent you simply wouldn't find on other sites. It's about finding those niche candidates you actually need. And with the right people in front of you, hiring becomes a breeze. Did you know that 86% of small businesses find a qualified candidate on LinkedIn jobs within 24 hours. That is how well their system works. Honestly, do yourself a favor and try LinkedIn jobs next time you're hiring. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash excellence. That's linkedin.com slash excellence. Terms and conditions apply, but it's definitely worth trying out.
I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information, but Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay, and what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch U.S.-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text success, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. 